Israel, why it matters to you, whether you know it or not. Hi, I'm Sissy Graham Lynch. Welcome to Fearless, helping you have a fearless faith in a compromising culture. Welcome back to another episode of Fearless. I'm Sissy Graham Lynch. And today we're gonna talk about a subject which I believe is a subject many Christians cannot and don't know how to defend. So as always here on Fearless, I wanna encourage you to know more, study more, know what you believe, why you believe it, and most importantly, know what God's word says. And today's subject is Israel. Other than the United States, I would believe Israel's probably mentioned more in the nightly news than any other country. But controversy and debate always surrounds Israel. And what is startling to me is that many Christians cannot articulate their support to Israel other than it's God's promised land. That would probably be the end of their argument. And Israel is this very tiny nation. It's probably about the size of New Jersey. And the population is only a little over 9 million people. Yet it is the geopolitical center in the world. Whether you know it or not, this tiny nation, the events that surround this nation affect you, me, and everyone around the world. So to talk about this subject, I am bringing in um, who I would believe would be an expert in this, and that is Skip Heisek. Skip, welcome to Fearless. It's great to be with you, Sissy, and it's great to talk about the subject. I, too, am very passionate about the things you just described. So it's great to be with you and your audience. Well, for those that don't know, Skip is the pastor of Calvary Church, Albuquerque. He's also been probably a dear friend of my dad's, one of my dad's best friends for 30 years. He's on our board at Samaritan's Purse. And my husband, Corey, and I were probably some of your biggest fans, Skip. Um, all during COVID, we watched Calvary, <laughs> Albuquerque. I have your app. I will encourage people at the very end to download your app. I think it's a crucial app. But um, you've how many times have you been to Israel? Uh, 41 times. Well, it is on my bucket list to go on one of Skip's tours to Israel. We almost made that happen one time where I, my husband was on your tour for about three days. I was getting ready to meet up. And then my grandfather passed away, so that couldn't happen. That's right. I remember that was a tough time. So one of these days, I will make it to Israel with the Isaac family. But Skip, I just want to share a little bit of my heart of why I want to have this conversation. And that's because my, um, I remember my brother-in-law asking Corey, uh, I think it was at Christmas, about Israel. And what happened was, here's my brother-in-law who grew up in a Christian school from kindergarten all the way to high school, his senior year. Then he goes off to an Ivy League. One of his best friends at Ivy League is Palestinian. And of course, has anti-Israel comments. And that's where my brother-in-law's beliefs about Israel started. And I thought how shameful that the school, this Christian school and this help raising up a kid to go into the world failed in this subject. But we can't look at Israel maybe on a political lens because if you do that, you might end up disliking the Jews and the Arabs. We got to look at it through a biblical lens. And that's, that's right. what I want to do today. So let's start at the beginning. Biblically, why is Israel so important? Why does Israel matter? Well, um, to, just to put it succinctly, uh, Israel is the very center of God's calendar, uh, his prophetic calendar. So way back in the Old Testament book of Daniel, 
It is written 70 weeks are determined, the angel said to Daniel, for your people. Those were the Jewish people. He was Jewish. And for your holy city. That's the city of Jerusalem. So um, long ago, God established that when he keeps time, he always keeps Israel at the center of that. So prophetic literature always will use Israel as the center of its its bearings. Uh, God promised that a descendant of King David would rule and reign the world from Jerusalem. It's all throughout the Old Testament, principally in Psalm 2. And uh, God made a covenant with the Jews. And the covenant is ongoing. In fact, in Jeremiah 33, God said, if you can break the covenant that I've made with the sun and the moon, then you can break the covenant that I made with Israel. So uh, he promised that uh, we sing it every Christmas, right? The government will be upon the shoulders of Jesus. Well, what government is that? It's the government of the world, but it's geocentrically at Jerusalem. So it's always been the center of God's timetable. We talked about is God's promised land, right? I think everybody knows that. What does that truly mean? When did that begin in scripture back in Genesis? It, it, well, yeah, it began all the way back in with Abraham. When God called Abraham, Abraham really was a Gentile. He was uh, from Ur of the Chaldees. His father was a pagan worshiper. And God called him to leave his country and go into a land that he promised. The land happened to be the land of Israel, as we know it. And uh, he said, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And uh, God establishes covenant with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. So there was a lineage that he followed. And and he made the covenant with Abraham and his offspring. So it was Abraham and Isaac, not Ishmael. Even though God said he loved Ishmael, Ishmael had a plan for Ishmael. God promised a specific land to the descendants of Isaac and then to the descendants of Jacob, uh, not Esau. So God followed all the way back from Genesis. And then in Exodus, when they were in bondage, he took them out of Egypt and brought them into that land specifically. And, you know, we look at, I think as a millennial and some of the concerns I have is that a lot of churches don't um, teach why it's important that evangelicals support Israel. Yeah. Um, I've heard many, uh, like a rabbi once told me when I was in Israel, the greatest friend to Israel has been the American evangelicals. Yes. And I think they're very concerned that the millennial evangelicals don't share that support. Why is it so critical that we as American evangelicals would support Israel? Well, simply put, because it, it matters to God. If it, if it matters to God, then it should matter to us. So because God gave the title deed of the land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that should just raise a flag of importance, number one. Number two, when we talk about supporting Israel, we support the covenant that God made with Israel. doesn't mean we support every Israeli policy that comes down the pike. Uh, It doesn't mean that we can't scrutinize decisions that a prime minister or the Knesset make. We should, like in anything else. But what we are supporting is the covenant that God made with the Jewish people. And, and because, principally because in Romans chapter 11, uh, Paul makes it clear that we owe a debt of gratitude to the Jews uh, for our inheritance, our Christian faith. They gave the precepts of God. They gave the laws of God. They gave us the Messiah. And, mm-hmm. and so because of all that we have to build on for our spiritual inheritance, um, we have a support for them. Um, in 1948, there were 
23 Messianic believers in Israel. Mm -hmm. Today, there are over 30,000 Messianic believers. So that's another reason we should support Israel. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are slugging it out in the trenches. It's very difficult to be a Christian in that land, to be a Messianic Jew, especially in that land. And so as believers um, in another part of the world, knowing we have brothers and sisters at uh, uh, that, that many, that's enough to support the land. You uh, just mentioned 1948, but May 14th of 1948, it might be one of the most pivotal, most critical days in U.S. history, modern history, where yeah. the world, if you were alive at the time, saw prophecy fulfilled that day. Um, Isaiah, what is it? You'll probably know off the top of your head. Isaiah 66. Oh, 66, a nation born in a day. Yeah. Why is that day so important that we actually saw prophecy, maybe that God keeps his word and it happened right yeah. before that world's eyes? Um, it was a modern miracle. The state of Israel um, in May 14th, 1948, you mentioned the date, Sissy. Uh, that's when God fulfilled his promise uh, to regather the Jews in their land. Um, no other nation that has ever been dispersed like that and has gone through what they've gone through has ever been regathered. Um, just think of their history, 400 years of slavery, two total destructions, multiple deportations, 2,000 years of dispersion, and a Holocaust. And yet God brings them back into this land, this ancient homeland. So it's been said, if you study Jewish history and you still don't believe in miracles, you're just not a realist. Uh, you mentioned Isaiah 66. I think perhaps um, even a more crucial prophecy is Isaiah 11, 11, where we read that um, the Lord will set his hand the second time to recover the remnant of his people. The first time he regathered them was after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, and then they got back in the land, and then we have New Testament times. But the second time that they were cast out of their land was by the Romans, and they have not back, been back in the land until May 14th of 1948. So, um, you know, you just think of the growth of that land. Gee, in 1948, the total population of the, of the whole land of Israel was around 80,000 people. Less than half of them were Jewish. Today, you mentioned there are over 9 million, and 6.6 .6 million are Jewish. So it is a Jewish homeland. Um, I found an article that is in the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica, and I'm quoting it now. It says, the possibility that we can ever again recover the correct pronunciation of ancient Hebrew is as remote as the possibility that a Jewish empire will ever again be established in the Middle East, close quote. What's remarkable about that is that uh, in Israel today, Jews speak a revived Hebrew language, and number two, they do so in their ancient homeland. Mm -hmm. So here you have a, 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 a source saying, look, it's near impossible for any of this to happen, and yet it has happened. You know, many people talk about America's been so blessed because we've blessed Israel. Is that true? Uh, it's very true. Um, remember the covenant that God gave to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. And in you, Abraham and Israel, eventually in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So not only have they been blessed by God, but 
they have been an instrument through which God's blessing has extended to the whole world. If you think of what Israel has produced in terms of Nobel Peace Prize winners, Mm -hmm. in terms of um, developments they have made, inventions they have made, the whole world has been blessed. But principally, those who treat Israel good, I think, are going to be treated good. Um, Some people think Israel needs America because Israel is always looking for international friends. Uh, to survive in the neighborhood they live in. But the opposite really is true. Uh, America needs Israel. Mm. And I remember talking to um, to an Israeli pastor one time saying, what is the one thing I said, what is the one thing of all the things you want American Christians to know? What it, What is it? And he goes, first of all, I want them to know that we love them, but we don't need them. Mm. Um, I think it's the opposite, he said. I think you need us. And um, all we have to do, Sissy, is look at history and, and, and we can see the judgment on those who have oppressed Israel in the past, mm-hmm. all the way from Egypt to Assyria to Babylonia to Rome, uh, even modern nations that were first-rate nations like England and Germany at one time are second-rate nations. And so um, you know, God keeps tabs of these things. Yeah. You look at the world's longest, probably the most widespread hatred Mm. Um, in the history of the world is against the Jewish people in the state of Israel um, and against the Jewish Jerusalem. But that's a supernatural hatred. Yes, it it's, is. Um, you can't, it's not on a political scale. This is so much deeper. And I think it's because, I mean, it's probably not a thing. It's we know Satan, we know the enemy. He comes to kill and destroy. Mm. And anything that God or chooses, of course, he's gonna do it anything in his power to destroy. That's right. And um, he will do anything to destroy God's people. Why is this such a supernatural hatred that we see? Uh, Okay, so I'm glad you framed it that way because I believe exactly that. Think of it this way. If, um, think of of being the devil. I know it's hard, but C.S. Lewis wrote a book, Being the Devil, called The Screwtape Letters. But imagine you're the devil. And you hear the announcement that God plans to redeem the world, but it is dependent upon the existence of a nation in order to do so and the continuance of that nation. Well, then all you have to do is destroy that nation and God's plan will be thwarted. So that's the premise, I believe, that Satan has worked off all of these generations. I'm going to destroy the receptacle through which he's going to bless the world. I'm going to destroy the nation that's going to bring forth the um, one who's going to crush my head. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3, God made the promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So ever since, you know, word got out that God had a plan to destroy Satan's empire, um, um, he he has launched a counterattack. So if you think about Israel's history, no nation has ever been harassed as harassed, as persecuted, as hated, as of the Jews. By the time we get to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, it's framed um, in a very understandable way. We have a dragon who is ready to destroy uh, the woman as soon as she gives birth to the male child. And we understand that the devil is persecuting the woman who is giving birth to the male child. The male child is Christ. The woman is the nation of Israel, um, as seen in Genesis. So if I destroy this nation, 
I can destroy God's plan. And throughout the Bible, we see um, we see Satan's plan or try, attempt to destroy the nation, all the way from Genesis 3, uh, the seed of the woman, uh, the prophecy goes out. In the very next chapter is the story of Cain trying to kill Abel. Um, because the idea is, well, uh, then he, this must be the child through which the promise is going to uh, take place. So Cain kills Abel. God raises up another lineage, Seth. Time goes on. Uh, Satan finally attempts to pervert the entire world. God destroys the entire world in Genesis 6 at the flood. He saves eight people. So the line continues through those eight people, Noah and his family. Um, we find Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Esau tries to kill Jacob. Um, then uh, Jacob escapes, comes back. Eventually, his sons go down to Egypt. Uh, they grow in numbers, becomes a nation of Israel under Moses. Uh, Pharaoh makes the demand that all of the male children that are born in Egypt die. Why would he do that? I think it's because he was inspired by Satan to destroy the seed. Uh, we get all the way down to the promises of David. And God promised that King David would rule and reign and a descendant of David. So there's enough information uh, going into Satan's kingdom that God is going to raise up King David to fulfill his promise. So what happens? Saul tries to kill David on, on a number of occasions, tries to thwart him from ascending into power. So we, we see this all the way, and I have several other instances, I won't bore you with them, all the way until Herod the Great decides to kill all the male children in Bethlehem, another attempt to destroy the seed that would destroy the head of Satan. Um, so, so the warfare, the counterattack has been because if I destroy the nation, I can destroy God's plan. That's why I believe we have seen the kind of hatred, anti-Semitism, and animosity that can only be called satanic. Yeah. And just, you know, listening to you, I think it's, that's why the Old Testament is so important. And that's just another burden and maybe another uh, subject for a different podcast. But there's some, I think many of my generation, many churches are not even teaching the Old Testament anymore. It's not relevant. And it's there you see God, his love for his people, his plan of redemption. Um, you have a book called The Bloodline. And yeah. from the beginning to the end, God's plan, his heart, and you get to know it. We, um, to keep going, we look back at during the Obama administration and some of the deals that they were making with Iran. And although, you know, Obama said that they would keep our relationship with Israel, I think probably many evangelicals were like, uh, they didn't believe it. Um, you know, Iran has said they want to wipe Israel off the face of the map. They want to take them. They want to destroy them. Then came the Trump administration, which of course was very outspoken with their support to Israel. And I'll never forget uh, being there when Trump moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And the joy in that city that the front of the uh, paper, I keep it on my desk, it said promises made, promises kept. Thank you, Mr. President, because this meant a great deal to the people of Israel. Why was that such a significant, or I should say, was that such a significant day? I was so proud of our president that day, Sissy, when he made that announcement, <clears throat> because 
so many other presidents before him made the same promise but never followed through. And here we have a president who, who didn't care what the world thought. He knew what was right. And uh, he knew that uh, it was time that America show demonstrated support for Jerusalem and for its, its right to be there. So um, why explain start- to like, yeah, explain to like somebody, a young Christian evangelical, why was that such a pivotal moment? It was pivotal because Jerusalem is, um, you know, the, the Jews say that, that uh, the center of the world is Israel, but the center of Israel is Jerusalem. It's the, it's the very epicenter of God's program. So um, God's program on earth and, this, and the center of Satan's attack is Israel, but principally the city of Jerusalem. And um, there's, there's something called the Temple Mount. Uh, it's where the, uh, the Golden Dome of the Rock is right now, but it's where the temple used to stand. So it was always considered the center of their, of their history. Uh, it has been removed um, years ago. And in its place, since uh, Islam has ascended, uh, there's a, a Dome of the Rock. But uh, Jerusalem is, is the um, center of God's plan. It's the geographic center of the world biblically. According to Ezekiel chapter 5, God said, I have set Jerusalem in the midst or right in the middle of all the nations. It's the glory center of the world ultimately. The prophet said the law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So God promised that um, Messiah will sit on the throne of David. It hasn't been occupied for 2,500 years. Uh, he will sit in Jerusalem and rule and rule the world. So when you when you bring together the kingless throne, which is in Jerusalem, and the throneless king, who is in heaven right now, Jesus, and you bring those together, that's going to be the fullness for the entire world. And that's our hope. I mean, that's the redemption of Jesus coming to set up his, his kingdom. And that's our hope. And that's what I encourage. I think especially my generation that we keep that eternal mindset that Jesus is coming back in his full glory to redeem his people and to set up his everlasting kingdom. But as we look at what's happening in our culture now that I think is so disturbing, um, it's not surprising to evangelicals as everything that you have just taught us about um, this supernatural hatred we see this movement coming up called the BDS movement. And it's the latest strategy to employed, um, employed by those who hate Israel and want to strangle it. Uh, the BDS, it stands for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And they want to you know, boycott any kind of tech company, any kind of business out of there. They want to, um, like I said, they want to destroy it. What, why is this cancel culture so dangerous as we're facing, especially for evangelicals, for us to take a stand against it, that even kind of talk on our college campuses. Yeah, it is rampant on college campuses, unfortunately. And it's by people who really don't know all the issues. They just take up an issue and they march with it. Uh, it's a principally a Palestinian-led movement. And uh, the reason it's so dangerous is it's only against one nation. It's only against Israel. It disregards human rights violations by by countries um, that that should be uh, boycotted, but it just it places all of the blame of the Middle East controversy and problems on Israel alone, when in fact the Palestinian um, people have rejected opportunity after opportunity by by leaders before them uh, for statehood all the way back um, from the UN partition in 1947. 
1947, they rejected a plan for statehood. A Palestinian state was offered to them. They rejected it. In 1967, it was offered to them. They rejected it. Uh, Jerusalem got control of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Um, in 2000, 2001, Clinton uh, tried to get Arafat together with the Prime Minister of Israel. Arafat rejected it. Uh, 2008, uh, Ehud Olmert, who was the uh, Prime Minister of the land at the time, offered something very similar. Every single time, the Palestinians rejected a deal. Now they want to blame Israel as saying they're the impediment to Middle East peace and thus world peace. So what it does is it emboldens Palestinian leaders uh, to refuse negotiations with anyone. They won't even talk about anything with Israeli leaders. So, um, and, and doing that, it just promotes anti-Semitism. Uh, you go to these college campuses where BDS is spread, and they're highly anti-Semitic. Um, uh, so it, it's, it's, it violates the core values of human rights. If these kids are really concerned about human rights, they could not be involved in the BDS movement. Yeah, I think too, you know, the generation coming up, they always want to cheer for the underdog. Mm -hmm. And I think they probably see Palestinians as the underdog, which yeah. I always think, how can you have more of an underdog than the Jewish people and everything that they've encountered since the beginning of history? But you mentioned especially there's a lot of... Oh, go ahead. Especially since Israel scores so high, when it comes to human rights, if you look at nations and their scorecard on human rights, Israel is way up there. And uh, a lot of these other nations um, in the neighborhood aren't so high. And I think that is just one of many misconceptions that people have of Israel. This is a yeah. democratic nation. It's a free nation. You have free elections. Um, Arabs in Israel are the most free than any other surrounding nation. Explain maybe what life uh, for Arabs and Jews looks like. I think when people go into the old city for the first time of Jerusalem, I know for me, I, it was hard. You saw all these different religions. Explain yes. what life inside of Israel actually looks like for the Arab and for the Jew. Israel is a Jewish state, but it is very amicable to other religions. It's, um, uh, it allows Christianity. Uh, it does not allow uh, what they call proselytizing uh, or missionary work, but um, because they want to keep it a Jewish state, but they allow uh, Muslims to practice Islam, Christians to practice Christianity. They tout themselves in freedom of religion. Uh, they uh, encourage people to have businesses uh, who are uh, Arab peoples. Um, there's all sorts of misconceptions that uh, Israel is the bully, that Israel is denying vaccines to Palestinian workers, when in fact, today and yesterday and the day before and the day before they've been vaccining for coronavirus, Palestinian workers who live in the West Bank and are get, uh, coming into Israel to work. Um, uh, so that's one misconception. Another huge misconception is when you go there, you see a wall that goes through parts of Jerusalem and over to Bethlehem. And uh, they, 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 the Palestinian people make a huge deal in some parts about this wall. And they say that this wall is really to divide them. It's to hurt them. It is, it's brought our economy down. What it has done is taken away 98% of the terrorism that used to take place uh, by these groups that came over uh, from the West Bank uh, into uh, Jewish sections to, to kill people. I lived in Israel. I lived on a kibbutz. I remember those terrorist attacks 
and uh, little children being killed in their beds at night. Um, so uh, every time Israel does something, the other side uses it to tell a narrative, to further their narrative. And, um, uh, you know, that's the problem with any kind of news source. To see, we're living in a day and age when it's hard to get reliable news because everybody's got some sort of spin on it. So, so we have to be careful about, about getting the truth. It's true. As I was kind of uh, reading, preparing yesterday for this, I Googled, I can't even remember what I, I searched, but every article that came up would have been, Israel did this, Israel, um, it was always anti-Israel, just a little bit of a tone that it was the poor Palestinians, but it wasn't telling the narrative of what the Palestinians did first. Yes, that's right. And, um, and, and, and not just the Palestinians, but the people that are in the West Bank and they're on, not in, in what we consider the border of Israel, but the firing of rockets incessantly into Israeli territory indiscriminately. And, and you know, the need for the Iron Dome system uh, to exist to protect its people is because of the onslaught of bombs from the north, from the south. And, the, and imagine trying to live that way. Imagine living in the United States and people shelling Florida or New Mexico or New York City. We're not going to just let that go. You know, at some point, we're going to have to put that out. Yeah, and so people realize the day after May 14th of 1948, they were being attacked from day one yes. and has continued all these years later. I think um, seeing is obviously believing. And I was a teenager. I kept begging my dad, dad, take me to Israel. I was the only one in the family that had not been. He'd taken my brothers when they were real young. But um, I had never been. And I kept begging my dad, I, dad, I just want to go. I want to kind of know why I believe it and see it. Israel holds a special place in my heart. It's where my dad gave his life to Christ up on the Mount of Olives. He was uh, with Roy Gustafson, a friend that you know. Yes. And my dad surrendered his life there. So it's very important to me. I'm actually wearing my mom's wedding ring that my dad bought in Israel the day after he gave his life to Christ nope. and yeah. went and bought it um, and said, I'm going home to talk to Jane. Oh. And so it's just a special place. So I begged my dad to take me for years. So finally, when I was pregnant with my first child, I think he realized, uh-oh, my time with Sissy is probably <laughs> getting short. He called me into his office and said, we're gonna go to Israel together. And since that moment, I think that was probably eight years ago, I've been many times. Um, my love and knowledge of God grows more every time. And I know it can be very expensive for people to go. Um, and it can be definitely something that you would have to prioritize. But why is it so important that we go to Israel to see it? What can that do for somebody? Well, I wanna answer that, but first I wanna say that when you went with your father, I know how special that was to him. And I can also see that special relationship in the film that you guys produced, where you documented you, you guys being in Israel and him showing you different things. And I, was, I just thought that was just so precious. And, and, and if people haven't seen that, they need to be told how they can see that. It's a really great a way to see the land through somebody's eyes, like Franklin, your father, who's been there and gave his life to Christ there, but you who were there for like the first time, I think, on that trip. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that was special. But, you know, Sissy, I remember when I first saw Israel, I was in my 20s, and I went there to live on a kibbutz to work on a farm, basically. Tell I was, people I was, what a kibbutz is. So a, a kibbutz is a cooperative farm 
it was sort of a socialistic system that I- I- Israel set up in the beginning. They're not really around in the same capacity as they are today because uh, anybody who knows socialism realizes it doesn't work very well long term. So they kind of had to get together in, in these cooperative farms called kibbutzim, and they did. They were very successful. I lived on one up by the Lebanese border. I heard gunfire every night um, in the early days. So that was 1978 when I lived there. But there was really one reason I wanted to go there, and that's because I read my Bible. And every time you read the Bible, it talks about the children of Israel or the land of Israel or Jerusalem. And after a while, you go, gee, I'd like to see this place, right? The Sea of Galilee. And I guess my biggest surprise was seeing how much of the land had not changed up by the Galilee region, especially. It just was rural and farmland, beautiful, and and probably very much like uh, it was during the time of Christ. So when you go and you you're in Israel, you can you, you'll read the Bible will be a different book. You'll never read the scriptures the same. They come alive in a way that they can't come alive any other way. Um, you will read in your Bible, and when you read it, you'll see it with your mind's eye from then on. It is transformative in just how you read the Bible, number one. Number two, you'll really get a better understanding of the geopolitical quagmire that the people of Israel are in when you sit in the neighborhood and you have conversations and you go from day to day to see how small that land is mm-hmm. and how many, how many enemies they have on their side. So it's, it's, it's an eye-opener. doesn't take long to get that picture. Yeah. And when you're there, the last time I was there, I was able to do a helicopter ride. And we went um, up to the Sea of Galilee, up to the Golan Heights, back down to Tel Aviv. You do really see how small it is. And really what they've done with that nation in such a short time, from agriculture to the technology um, and how they've grown and how they've prospered in this tiny land of um, just that God promised thousands of years ago. Yes. And you know, Sissy, um, see, that's the thing. There's a shift in the evangelical world toward Israel because the older generation, I'll point at myself, um, saw the miracle of Israel. Uh, I wasn't around in 1948, but it was still fresh enough that everybody knew this was undisputable, undisputably a miracle. This is, this has never happened before. And so you get evangelicals who who see that and and have been there and they're a part of it and it's important to them. The younger generation um, didn't have that history, but also the younger generation is less biblically literate than the older generation. And so if if you're not a Bible student or a Bible reader, it's not going to make that much of a difference to you. That's why the Bible is so important. Um, Also, uh, I don't want to cast aspersions, but it seems to me that the millennial generation is more personal than it is theological. Theological, It's like, well, what do you feel about that? Or does that personally hurt you? Or I know somebody who is uh, of a Palestinian origin. You know, we want to take the microcosm of an example rather than the macrocosm of history. And so, um, the, so that's why I say Millennials are a little bit more personal than than they are theological, and and I think that that's okay to be personal. It's important to be loving and considerate of all people, 
but also become theologically astute and get the big picture. And that is a good segue because I want to end talking about your latest book, uh, The Biography of God, because I've encouraged so many people here on Fearless. They know my life of verse for the last year and a half is Daniel chapter 11. Those who know their God will be able to stand in strength and take action. The issue is we don't know our God. We don't know his attributes. We don't know the true characteristics of God. Um, That was a challenge to myself. And I am saying that as an encouragement to people that we have to know God. So in your book, which I think is probably a pretty big undertaking to to write a book called The Biography of God. But how do we know God, not just know about him? I think there's a difference um, knowing about him and knowing him. How do we know him and his attributes? Let me frame it this way. The most amazing thing about God in in the scripture is that God, God wants a relationship with people. He doesn't have to have one. Why? Why would he want, why would he create people and then say, I really want you to have a relationship with me. And so just the humility of God who would, would allow human beings that are flawed and sinful and rebellious in every generation, that he is always inviting us to come into relationship with him is, is amazing to us. How do we do that? Well, um, it's in one sense different than it is with anybody else. And in another sense, it's the same as it is with anybody else. It's different because we're not dealing with another individual. We're dealing with God. God is unique. So if you're going to have a relationship with God, it's going to be a unique relationship. It can't be like having a relationship with a a boyfriend or girlfriend or mom and dad, simply because God is invisible. God uh, dwells in, in a different construct than we do. So the relationship, the personal relationship, is going to be very different. In the other sense, it's going to be similar because in any relationship, you communicate, you receive communication. You love, you receive love. Um, You talk, you you listen. So it is that way with God. We, um, we, We talk to him in prayer. We listen to him in his scripture. The Holy Spirit comes in to confirm certain things. He promises to be with us day, day in and day out. And yet, Uh, All those personal things, also we have to realize that there's the fear of the Lord, um, there's God transcends humanity, so he's he's far above us. So the relationship is going to be similar but different. And you just talked about the fear of the Lord. I was just talking with uh, my dear friend, Kay Arthur, who actually said I had to cancel with her so I could interview you because I forgot I'd had you scheduled for a week. She told me to tell you hello, by the way. She loves you, but um, she was asking me some questions and I said, I think for my generation, the two issues I see is we don't fear the Lord, not truly understanding what that means, and we don't understand his holiness. And you um, refer to God's holiness as the most unpopular attribute of God. What do you mean by that and why? Uh, It's super important, but it's unpopular because perfection is never attractive to somebody. Uh, we're flawed individuals, and and as flawed individuals, nobody likes to be shown their flaws. Nobody likes to be shown up. Uh, if you look at social media, sissy, it's all about picturing our ideal self to people. Uh, here, here am I with somebody important. Here am I in a in an exotic place. So you're painting a picture, and and it's not a true picture. 
When we think of God, we want to think of only God's uh, feel-good attributes. Uh, We don't want anything to challenge our shortcomings. At least most people don't. But the reason God's holiness is so important, and it's important that we understand it, is God's holiness explains his judgment. It's, it's his holiness that it explains his wrath. When you understand God's holiness, you understand why God um, would execute wrath, why God has to judge, and you will understand what led God to create hell. Mm-hmm. You really won't understand that until you understand God's holiness. Did you know that God is called holy in Scripture far more than he is called gracious or mighty or, for that matter, even loving? Though he is all those things, he is supremely holy. And it's God's holiness that assures us that he is going to be perfectly just in his dealings with people. Well, Skip, thank you for joining. I want to encourage everybody to check out his latest book, The Biography of God. And thank you for, I think those who are listening understand why Corey and I enjoy your ministry so much that that Skip knows God's word. And I remember watching you, uh, I just quoted you on one of my recent podcasts, but we were watching you one Sunday morning when we couldn't make it to church. And um, you are simply just teaching God's word. There were no notes on it. You weren't uh, preaching, you were teaching. And because it's hidden in your heart. And that's just an encouragement to me, to my family, to know God's word, to know what we believe and why we believe it. And thank you for talking to us about Israel. And I think it's important to remember that Jesus is coming back um, and he's gonna establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. And one day we will be face to face with our Jewish Messiah. And that's gonna be a glorious day when the whole world says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Thank you to everybody listening on today's podcast. I wanna encourage you, check out and download Skip's app. I have it, I use it all the time. Any chapter in the Bible you need to know about or to learn about, he has it covered multiple times over different years and different sermons. I encourage you to check it out and his book. And once again, thank you, Skip, for joining us. 